Welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you. I'm Ingrid Cochran, your host for today, and my co-host, Matthew Fortell, is also with me. Thank you so much for joining us on History, Culture, Trauma. We're going to have a very interesting conversation today with Tyler Council, who is with CAST. Uh, He's going to tell us a little bit more about um, his program, which is the Zero Abuse Project, and um, the work that he's doing, how he got into the work. And um, hopefully we'll get into some good conversations about the field of um, child abuse prevention uh, and um, really kind of the the big picture when it comes to the pipeline and all the different ways that we work to prevent child abuse in our country. Um, So I'm going to jump over to Matthew, let him introduce himself to our audience. I am excited uh, for us to have this conversation with Tyler. I I met with Tyler, I guess it's been a couple months ago. And just walked away feeling uh, excited about the work that he's doing. He's worked over six years in both public and private laboratory uh, sector. Uh, he has been a microbiologist, DNA specialist, a quality insurance, quality control manager, forensic scientist. He has done a lot. Um, and it's pretty powerful work. His most recent venture involved the, uh, as a forensic science with the Indiana State Police Laboratory Division. Uh, he's training. It was in, in it also included drug analysis, uh, question document analysis, firearms, fingerprinting, all kinds of that forensic work. Uh, and when I, when I found out this about Tyler, I thought, how did you get into what you're doing now? Well, in addition to that, and to, in addition to his laboratory work, um, he has an extensive experience in post-secondary education with over seven years of professional work uh, experience in institutions of higher education. And he had now actually served as an associate professor for traditional and online learning platforms, which uh, with a combined five years of program development and directional leadership experience for CAST, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So, Tyler, welcome to our show. And, and Thank you. I just I just gave this whole gambit of what you've done already. How did you come into this work? What is your story? It's a laundry list, right? So thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Ingrid, for having me. Yeah. In terms of my professional career experience, I think it really does echo how a lot of us get into the field of child maltreatment prevention and intervention. Um, It's very much a roller coaster, a pinball machine style uh, engagement where you're bouncing from, from position and career path, you know, back and forth until you you really settle in and realize just how much children today need us from an from a standpoint in terms of responding to allegations of abuse and neglect. You know, um, just looking at my my academic career, I really focused on forensic science. To give you a little bit of history and context into why I got into forensics, quite frankly, it was because of my family. Um, my uncle on my father's side passed away suddenly and the details just didn't add up quite frankly. Um, I I haven't seen any case studies or research where somebody with a self-inflicted gunshot wound would have ligature marks around their arms. So I begin to question this. I looked at the trauma and the, the grief that is still carried with many of my family members. And I go, wow, I mean, this happened back in the, in the sixties or seventies, 
forensics just wasn't what it is today with DNA, right? And with everything that we've done to advance uh, forensic science. So I became passionate about this field just because I thought that I could help other people to give them insight, to give them answers. I just didn't realize how many cases involve children oftentimes that are hurt or traumatized. Um, from my, my career experience working in the laboratories, you know, we we get quite a few cases where it's a sexual assault kit with children or early adults, right? I mean, people whose lives have been forever changed by, by this kind of criminal maltreatment. Um, in between my time as a laboratory analyst and lab manager, I also was teaching criminal justice and forensic science. And I just started to realize, you know, one day especially, that we are dropping the ball in terms of higher education preparation. We're just not teaching enough about what child abuse looks like, how to recognize it, how to respond to it, and more importantly, how to even stop it before it starts from an at-risk perspective. Uh, the story where I became involved with child advocacy studies actually is, is one that I share with my wife, uh, Jenny Lee. At the time, and this was before we, we had our children, so we're talking almost a decade, a little bit more than a decade ago, um, my wife experienced a situation where abuse was occurring inside of a classroom, a primary school classroom, where an individual was taking children and abusing them in a closet, undressing them, right? She didn't know how to make a mandated report at the time, didn't very much feel confident in making a successful report. She goes to the principal at the institution where she was employed and they, in so many words, uh, using colorful language, as you can imagine, said, we don't really care at this time. The teacher is unionized. And for some reason, that was a pass to abuse these children. My wife came home crying. She didn't know what to do. I mean, this is her start of her career and someone is doing something egregious to these children. Uh, one of our most trusted right assets is a teacher in terms of providing resources and resilience for a child. And yet they're hurting this child and she didn't know what to do. I, at this point, had my doctorate. I have two, you know, I have my doctorate, my master's degree and two bachelor's degrees, and I had never been trained on this subject. And Jenny Lee said to the best of her knowledge in her four years of undergraduate preparation, maybe one 50-minute conversation about abuse and how to make a report. She was not prepared. And we discussed it and we said, well, at this point, the best thing for you to do is to quit your job. Because if you can't stand up and advocate for this child, what else can you do? And these kinds of stories they're a dime a dozen in America and internationally today. How many people get into this field, are passionate, really want to help, and then they run afoul of a situation where child abuse is present, but they just don't know what to do. Or they try to do something and it doesn't work out and a child's life is put back into the hands of an abuser. Or the abuse escalates and unfortunately a child's life ends as a result of what I would argue is good intentions, but just poor planning and implementation. Um, so that's where we were at is I realized that I had failed my wife as a husband. I, I had failed as an educator at this time. How am I graduating criminal justice students into the field without them really learning about how prevalent and how concerning and how impactful child abuse is? So around 2015, I actually started researching this, trying to figure out what can I do to affect change from an 
academic level. And I found Victor Veith, who's you all might know as a champion for children. He's one of the nation, if not the world's most premier uh, child abuse professionals and experts. And I was trained on CAST. I implemented it flexibly within my coursework. And through those good deeds and efforts, I actually found a opening with Zero Abuse Project where they were looking for a CAST director because CAST uh, is actually an academic program that is launched in undergraduate and graduate coursework. And so that's how I became interested in it. And they really needed someone to fuel a global movement where we could bring CAST to colleges and universities the world over. So that's how I became invested in CAST. Um, in terms of frontline work, I, I think you'd already kind of hinted upon this. I still do work as a, a local deputy coroner uh, where, again, we're just learning so much, right, on the front lines right now. And, and through the work as a death investigator, I think it's really important, even from a CAST perspective, that we understand that abuse can be fatal and that we do everything that we can to provide voices to those who are lost. So let's get into what CAST does, because you gave us that little overview, right? Sure. You gave us like the, the elevator, but but what what is the mission and how is it implemented and why is it important across all fields? Uh, you know, when you and I previously talked, I talked about my wife's experience of being an engineer and right. a surveyor and how she was trained on and her team was trained on how to look for certain things while out in the field. And we connected on that. So just give us a deeper uh, dive into cast and the right. significance it plays in so many different roles um, in the community. Absolutely. So. CAST being an education-based program, it really helps the learners to understand what different typologies of abuse exist and the fact that abuse oftentimes is co-occurring, right? We have complex polyvictimization in a high um, proportion of our, our children. And it helps them to better recognize what this is, what abuse and neglect looks like, and then what different investigative roles and responsibilities and systems come into play to help that child? What can we do to properly investigate and ensure that this child is safe and can return to a sense of normal or new normal, and at the same time ensure that all of those individuals that are responsible for causing that harm are held accountable? And so with CAST, what we really focus on is building knowledge and building skills through active problem-based or experiential learning through simulation, the closest thing that we can get to the real world without actually putting someone's life or their career or a child's safety in harm's way, right? We, we don't want to jeopardize anybody's lives. And so CAST is really built on that simulation learning experience. And in terms of really how is it it's setting trends in your community, how is it setting trends you know, within your college and university settings, we need to build a more resilient and better prepared next generation of child protection professionals, simply put. In addition to that, we need more astute citizens, right? We need people just in our communities aware of child maltreatment, even if they don't go into work into child intersecting career paths. We want people to be better parents. We want people to be better policymakers. Vote, right? I mean, vote for change. Vote for positive change that advocates on the rights of a child. That's what CAST is really all about, is we want people to understand the severity and the seriousness of child maltreatment, how it impacts the child across their lifespan, right? Because we know this turns into generational abuse. And we know from the Adverse Childhood Experiences studies that we see a lot of psychological and physiological 
health impacts as a result of maltreatment, even down to your basic blueprint with DNA, right? We see when we're looking at an epigenetic level type of impact, we see DNA change as a result of trauma. So we know it exists. So we at Zero Abuse Project, again, it's a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to ending child abuse. CATS is one of our flagship programs. CAST is just dedicated to empowering and educating the next generation of frontline professionals, parents, and citizens in effectively intervening when child abuse exists and also helping to prevent child abuse before it starts, recognizing at-risk behaviors and situations where we can stop and say, hey, we recognize there's something here. How can we provide better supports and systematic structures to try and stop abuse before it ever even begins in the life of a child. So that's kind of cast as, a, as mm -hmm. an elevator pitch, if you will. Um, <laughs> we know that education is a primary driver for positive forward change from a, a socio-ecological level is education works. Yeah. I, I remember when we first met and we really connected on our, our backgrounds. And so in my former life, I was a CPS investigator. I worked with the Department of Children's Services. I even worked with their, um, I did some training for their staff that handled the calls that come into the child abuse um, hotline. And so in, in what you're saying is so true that there is, um, there needs to be a clear understanding of what to do when I, um, as an individual, know that a child is being uh, mistreated. Um, I live in Tennessee, which is a mandated reporting um, state, but, you know, regardless of whether it's mandated or not, um, I mean, this goes back to kind of the um, discussions that me and Matthew have had in the past where um, child abuse is so rampant and we as a country yeah. have uh, just, we're desensitized to it. And, um, and beyond that, we, we have plenty of environments where it just, it's just rampant. It's just breeding. Right. Um, and so I, I do know that, you know, kind of 2020 is a collective trauma and in this space, uh, when it comes to first responders and people who would very much, um, benefit from what CAST has to offer when it comes to child abuse, uh, awareness right. and recognition, um, I know that they've been going through a lot these last couple of years. Right. Um, social workers, EMTs, all of our first responders, um, police officers. And so what are the trends that you've noticed as we, um, you know, are dealing with the collective trauma of COVID, our racial reckoning, um, just, you know, what, have, sure. what are the trends and differences or even challenges in this field? Well, I think... One of the most persistent things we saw even pre-pandemic, but exacerbated by the pandemic, has been burnout and turnover. You know, you mentioned the fact that I feel like, and I agree with you, that a lot of people are desensitized to violence right now. And as a result, I think that a lot of abuse and a lot of maltreatment, in addition to COVID, really resulting in so many, right, social isolating moments where a child can't make a disclosure, I, I think that overall that this pandemic, because of how we were isolated and how we were boxed in, it really left a lot of children in the hands of their abusers. You know, we saw a decrease in mandated reports, but what we saw was an increase in severity uh, when it came to children with, in particular, physical abuse coming to our emergency rooms, into our pediatric trauma centers. 
those are experiences that people are seeing and seeing a more severe type of abuse, seeing abuse while in the context of a public health crisis, it puts increased strain on our, our multidisciplinary teams, right? Those individuals that respond to allegations of abuse and neglect. And I can tell you that this pandemic has only exacerbated that turnover and burnout. I mean, if you look, According to Casey Family Programs, 16% of teachers, which are oftentimes our number one source of mandated reporters, they leave the field. And if you look at those schools, the Title I schools, where they receive that federal funding for low-income students, the turnover rates reach upwards of 50%. As a, as a caseworker, right, and social work, on average, we see somewhere in a range of 20 to 60% turnover. Some states have 80% or higher turnover of our caseworkers. So great people are leaving the field. They're, they're burnt out. They have vicarious trauma. They are burnt out from their own health consequences as a result of COVID. I mean, I don't think I need to really reiterate the fact that we have lost millions of lives the world over. I, I think we're losing upwards of like 3,000 people. I believe it's a week to COVID in terms of COVID deaths. The number one killer of law enforcement on duty was COVID for the past two years. And in fact, last year, the the actual deaths from COVID were so high, I, I don't think that it had been surpassed since like 1930, according to one of the reports that I found. Um, when you look at this and you see this, I mean, 16% of teachers, you're looking at anywhere from 20 to 80% of your social workers are leaving the field. They're burnt out. And the biggest challenge too, and where CAS comes in is we want to ensure people understand the realities of what it's like working in this field and how to respond to child maltreatment. But we also want to build that resiliency in, you know, with COVID, what we found, and there's been a, a few studies on this, I know that looking at EMTs and at social workers, there's been a high instance of anxiety and depression in the next generation student. So with CAST, one of the major concepts that we work on is resiliency and is looking at some of those promotive or protective factors for you as the workforce to help you maintain, right, your health, your mental well-being while you're still working through not only the child abuse cases that you have to work through on a day-to-day -day basis, but also how to navigate this in the context of a public health crisis. Yeah, and it makes me think about a conversation I just had um, with Dr. Chan Hellman about the impact of hope. And he dug into this idea of resiliency as the outcome of hope. And I think that when I, as he began to un, un, uh, unfold that and dig into it, I, it really made me think deeply about my role as a principal and my role as a father and, and how I live this life in this world. And I think about your role and what you all do in, within the, in, in universities to, not only uh, educate people about how do we not only prevent, right, but what right. do we do in, when there is maltreatment or abuse. But I also know that embedded in that is hope and outcomes driven of, listen, this is why we're doing this, because you base it in science and research. And, and there is right. research, a lot of research out there. It's why we're PACES, right? Why we're positive and adverse childhood experiences. So talk through that, talk through, you know, when you think about uh, the work that we do and it's heavy, right? It's heavy work. Oh yeah. What does that look like when a, when a student goes through CAST and they're learning about this, how do you infuse that positive piece of what we call PACES and the positive 
um, childhood experiences within the context of, of uh, the content? Right. Well, I, that's a great question. Um, when it comes to resilience, I think it's a two-pronged approach with CAST. The first thing is when we're doing those investigations, when we're working towards you as the student working to investigate allegations of child abuse and neglect, we obviously look for the risk factors and the evidence that indicate the child abuse is substantiated. But we also look for those protective factors too. Who is it that gives you joy? Who is it that provides a, a safety net, if you will, for these children? What are the different structures and the different components to your lived experience that are positive? Do you have a great social system? I mean, looking at children today, as we re-enter society and we go back to school, right, and, and amidst this pandemic, you know, having sports teams, having friends, having social clubs, we, we want our students to really look into those positive factors. We also look from just that community resiliency standpoint is what are the different outlets where a child can engage with the community and the resources there or the non-offending caregiver as well. The second prong of this approach is not just looking at what resiliency factors and what hope is there and providing that in a trauma-informed way to the child, but we also look at it from the workforce professional. What are you doing? right? What is the positive aspect of your job and your career, which I think is really important. So for example, as a death investigator, um, we recently had some training on this actually at the state level. And one of the things we found is that as a death investigator, you're oftentimes stigmatized, right? Death is something we don't want to naturally talk about. So you're stigmatized in your work. And then you have to realize your work is intense. As you mentioned, Matthew, is my work is somebody has passed, a child has died. And for us, what is a win? A win for us in our career is figuring out the cause and the manner of death. And if this is something where maltreatment resulted in that death, a win for us, unfortunately, is figuring out that somebody has caused this death, right, to this child. Now, that's a heavy toll to exact. That is something you have to process. But it's all about context, right? And that's where the hope comes in is the context here. The hope is, is that we have stopped somebody from potentially hurting someone else, from hurting another child, either within the family or having another child and then hurting them, right? We've stopped the abuse. We've also given a voice to that child who cannot speak anymore. I mean, the dead do tell tales. And so through our investigative work in that capacity, that's where the context comes in is, yes, a person has died. This is unfortunate. A young life has been extinguished before its time, but we're able to stop somebody from perpetuating that violence. We're able to uphold a justice system that I, I will have no problem saying we, we do have our flaws, policies, and structurally. We have seen racism and inequity across how we handle maltreatment, across how people have experienced maltreatment in communities of color. This pandemic has only exacerbated and created an even greater divide in those different systems and those flawed policies. But it really is, from our standpoint, hope comes from that context of knowing that you are trying to help that person. You're trying to find that better step to give someone closure, even in some circumstances. That is a positive and reaffirming point. And then we do work towards, you know, coping and grounding strategies just because Toxic stress can build up. Vicarious trauma is, is quite prevalent within our professional fields. You know, I even personally, there, there are certain things that trigger me, right? Even in the forensic science laboratory as a death investigator, certain types of cases and situations, those kinds of things manifest 
how can I cope? How can I ground? What are positive self-care strategies instead of those maladapted ones? Um, we really talk about that. I can tell you that a lot of people in, in my field, which really focuses on that law enforcement, investigative, prosecutorial side, unfortunately, they use substances, right? Alcohol seems to be a major licit, right, substance that, that we do see people use. How can we break that cycle? How can we curb that? Because we know the deleterious effects of overconsumption of alcohol. So we talk about those self-care practices and we talk about creating policies that are more trauma-informed and that allow that worker to be more resilient, right? So for example, please accept psychological services. I, I think this is something that is even in today's time, oftentimes overlooked and stigmatized. We need to do a lot more myth busting on that. Um, you know, I've been told, go see your chaplain, which I think is a great resource, but don't, you don't want a record, right? If, if you go see a counselor or a mental health specialist, no, we need to disrupt that kind of thinking. And so that's what CAST does. It's based on groundbreaking innovations. It's based on best practices and evidence-based knowledge and research on how we can effectively prevent and intervene in circumstances with child abuse. Yeah, I really think that that duality is important. So both as we are serving children and families, but also internally within workplaces right. uh, and typically um, when people kind of begin or organizations get on this trauma-informed journey, they tend to focus on, um, you know, the people and families and children that they're serving, but not acknowledging that internal work that needs to be done. And uh, especially with our uh, first responders, because, um, right. you know, even as we talked about, you know, the legal system and how it does have its, its problems, I mean, there's no, um, there's no question that um, our first responders to include our uh, police officers are experiencing high levels of stress. Um, and that's reflected in, like you said, um, use of substances, but also domestic violence, um, you know, divorce rates, right. uh, and, you know, all of the ways that, um, you know, that can manifest in their own lives. So I think it's great that we take the time to really focus on, um, self-care, even though we are having right. a problem with that, that term lately, but self-care within the first responder populations, including social workers and, um, and our health professionals, it's just so important. Uh, I think that um, what we've brought up in this first half is really important. I think, you know, giving people kind of like behind the veil for the first responders and, and also reflecting on how, um, ill-equipped we are to deal with um, child maltreatment in general as a society. Now, I think when we come back from the break, um, we want to talk a little bit more about what you said around uh, the impact of COVID. You know, we talked about burnout, but also kind of the structural issues with around race and poverty and, and those inequities that exist. So we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we'll talk more with Tyler Council from CAST. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In this polarizing age of misinformation, it is critical to examine the lessons of the past 
on history, culture, and trauma. Ingrid Cochran, CEO of Paces Connection, and her guests will explore historical trauma and outline how our collective past shades our perception of today's world and our shared experiences. In this podcast, we will examine the impact of past atrocious cultural events and the impact of the systemic trauma of racism and poverty on the human experience. Ingrid and her guest will also outline what is needed for our collective healing. Please join us for History, Culture, and Trauma, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Okay, we are back with Tyler Council from CAST. Uh, In the first section, we really talked about you know, how you got into the work and um, definitely what CAST does for our community and um, in in academic spaces and how we, as a society, really need to um, be more educated and have a very clear plan when we encounter child abuse and maltreatment. And um, and I think that the conversation is, is very needed. Like I said before, me and Tyler have a similar background in kind of CPS investigations and training. Um, I'm also a um, college professor in, in psychology, and I know that for sure that my students are not prepared to have those conversations as they get into, most of my students are going into um, casework and social work. So one thing that I have noticed is that I agree there are less uh, you know, students coming in wanting to go into these fields, uh, especially casework, social work, and the um, people serving fields that are more one-on-one, like kind of crisis response and things of that nature. Um, And we talked a little bit about how that's kind of um, tied to the last couple of years with with COVID and our racial reckoning. And um, let's talk more about, about what that looks like. I know in my experience, you know, people are less likely to want to go into these fields now. My students are wanting to do different things. 
um, they talk about systemic racism and how um, they feel like the field is not addressing it in a real way. They definitely talk about, um, you know, not wanting to be exposed to COVID in, in the work that they're doing. Absolutely. So, um, so burnout, um, you know, the impact of racism, it's, it seems like these last right. couple of years has really brought it to the forefront. What are you seeing in, in your work and kind of what, what are the problems and what are the solutions there? Yeah, I, I will just go ahead and say that the disproportionality in terms of access to healthcare has been something that's been pretty staggering. Um, again, as a scientist, I, I tend to look at that. I've got you know a, a family full of nurses. And so whenever I look at this, I see the disproportionate amount of indigenous communities, communities of color that have been both infected and that have resulted in a catastrophic loss of life. I mean, it's completely disproportionate when we look at every community of color. They, they have been negatively impacted. We are not doing enough to provide high quality healthcare to these communities and to provide equitable access. I, you know, I, I just actually recently, as a part of a, a webinar that I'm working on, looked at the disproportionality from even just a foster care perspective and looking at African-American children in 2018, right, pre-pandemic, 14% of the population are African-American children, yet they comprise 23% of children in foster care. This has only become more problematic with COVID. Um, African-American children are still up there. They account for 23% of the foster care population. But again, they only make up 13% of our overall population. We, we cannot set our children up, especially in communities of color, for continued perpetuation of adverse childhood experiences. Um, one of the things that I did see, and I believe this was a South Carolina study, was that uh, parents with ACEs, one or more ACEs, the higher the ACEs, the more prevalent that the ACEs manifest during the COVID pandemic. And then as a result, the greater exposure to new or existing ACEs or an increase in severity of ACEs occurred within communities of color. We need to be more cognizant of that. The studies are just rolling out, right, from 2021 to 2022. There's a lot that we are still learning about how COVID has impacted children and has impacted the, the ACEs science and the research and the prevalence there of, but from a, a workforce perspective, from an educational perspective and cast, one of the things that we always try to really hone in on is the structural and systemic bias and racism in the lens of equitable access to things like healthcare and recovery and placement systems. You know, our perspectives course, for example, because we have three courses that we really try to hone in on that we think cover the gamut of what child maltreatment is and how to respond and investigate accordingly. We really try to look at that imbalance in our work with communities of color as they're impacted by poorly planned policies and historic racism within those policies and our practices that result in that kind of disproportionate and severe outcome for those populations. You know, from a, a culture and value standpoint too, I think it's really important that we look at some of those historic concepts like vaccine hesitancy, right? How do we, how do we address that? How do we approach different communities, right? Our, our minority communities in an equitable way, in a trauma-informed way, and we understand their lived and historic experiences, we talk about that in CAST. We talk about the fact that different values and value systems are contained within different cultures and societies. And here's the crazy thing about our world, right? We are, we are this vibrant melting pot, but for some reason, we still continue to perpetuate 
how to look at right only one lane, how to how to deal maybe for perhaps just the Caucasian population in terms of response and investigation. When we know that just for an example here in my local community, depending on the community members you talk to, if they're from our Haitian population, if they're from our Latino population, who you talk to during an investigation, how you approach them, how you break bread with them, it's going to be different. And their perceptions of access to our systems for investigative purposes, it's also going to be different. For example, engaging with law enforcement, say, for example, if you did not immigrate legally here, are they going to access those systems? I, I think we've even seen that, you know, I know that there were some challenges looking at the Uvalde situation is parents not coming forward, parents not accessing the resources because they were afraid that not only is their child passed away from this unfortunate incident, but now will they be deported? Will they lose then the stability they had with their living children and families? We look at all of these things. And in fact, we look in one of our courses, our, our global child advocacy studies, we look at that multicultural lens and the unique perspectives of maltreatment that exist. Because even in America, what happens and what we see as commonalities in maltreatment is vastly different then say, for example, in Africa, where slavery for manufacturing and production purposes exists, where in other countries we see children being indoctrinated into right terrorism and terrorist cells. It, it is an interesting journey. It is one that we simply can't continue to turn a blind eye to. And with CAST, we're trying to break that ground and we're trying to create new paths to understanding that lived and historic racism and bias that exists so that we can make the world a safer place for kids. Yeah, and, and this really, um, it does come back to kind of the academic circles because we're talking about, you know, um, how we uh, create curriculum and teach uh, people who are going into the field in this academic space. And the academic space has been well known for telling a single story. Uh, right. And so um, the way that they research uh, all aspects of academia until very recently have been really um, um, focused on a white model or a white male model. And right. this has really um, impacted the way that we do work in the space. So I think it's great that CAST is really taking this into account and um, that allows for us to tell, you know, many stories um, and be very clear about how, um, you know, like you said, what access really looks like. Because right. uh, it makes me think about um, when we talk about stigma around mental health or stigma around um, in, in institutional distrust, right. those are things that we have to take into account with um, families of color as we um, navigate this child abuse space. Absolutely. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely um, glad that this is something that CAST is taking on. Well, and I would argue that I think CAST is already making those, those kinds of waves. And I think it's gaining recognition, especially within our communities of color. So we actually performed our first ever CAST impact analysis. We looked at what our CAST programs, we, we actually have, I think I, I told uh, Carrie yesterday, we had 86 programs. We actually have 89 programs. Surprise. It's CAST is growing. People are realizing the need for education and training on recognizing and putting an end to child abuse. 89 programs in 29 states. When we looked at our impact report, one of the things that just, it, it did, it warmed my heart. I was so excited to see this. Most of our students, uh, the predominant majority of students, they are from communities of color. They are mostly female. 
they have lived experience with the current child protection and the child welfare system. In other words, they have been through it. They've been placed in foster care. Someone has been arrested for maltreatment or they know someone, right? I mean, this is the thing is I feel like, like you mentioned, we seem to look in this one track path of, well, abuse just doesn't affect everybody. Somebody doesn't know someone that's been abused, right? No, that's not the case. Our students, this next generation, they know. They know what it looks like. They know what works and they know what doesn't work. And that's important to lend those voices. And again, with CAST, that's what we try to do. We create these simulation experiences that actually immerse them in the culture and the understanding so that they can work towards those best practices and create that change. And what's even more amazing is CAST is very flexible in what programs it's integrated into, right? CAST can be in criminal justice. We can change what law enforcement looks like in the future. CAST can be in law programs, education. We even have a program at the University of Illinois Springfield in public administration. Anywhere that you think you can affect change as it pertains to child maltreatment, that's where we want to see CAST grow and flourish. Well, and, and I think that's that's important to, to continue to highlight. And you you have dug into this work yourself individually and through CAST. But what do you see the next steps for the work? Where do you see where right. do you see this work going? Because I think you said it exactly that this can be embedded in any program, right? right. Anyone has the capacity to identify, see, and report, intervene, whatever whatever the process is. Yeah. To the maltreatment of of, of children because. People interact with people all over. I even think about, I'm even thinking retail, like, wow, what would be powerful if there was just a, hey, this is something to be aware of because I've been in stores and I've been in places where I'm like, do I need to like, do I, matter of fact, it just happened a week and a half ago. I was, uh, I pulled into a a local fast food place and there was this car, um, the lights were flashing, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the doors were going unlocked and open the windshield right. wipers. And I looked down and there is a, he's probably 14 or 15 month old sitting in the front seat by himself and no oh, adult gosh. anywhere to be around. Yeah. So I stood there and I monitored and I waited. And then the parent right. actually yelled at me because I was standing next to the vehicle. <laughs> and I just said, listen, I'm just, you know, I just was concerned about hey, your child. I was keeping him safe. You're doing your due diligence. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's the next step is cast has been around for almost two decades it's been very grassroots movement focused. We, we have gained ground in higher education through connections with excellent collaborators such as yourselves, right? It's people that are seeing the turnover and the burnout in the front lines and it's costing them and it's costing kids their lives and they need to make a change. And so what they do is they go out and they advocate with their colleges and universities, right? You need CAST. You need it yesterday because the current front lines are already struggling. CAST is at no cost. You can flexibly deploy this in any undergraduate and graduate programming that you you see fit. Um, We provide resources and content. We're actually working on toolkits to make CAST ready to deliver. That's kind of the next big step from a resource standpoint. Um, We... We also, because I've seen those similar situations before too, Matthew, I mean, I had a situation where someone was engaged in physical violence with their child as they're walking into our local Walmart, right? And so one of the things I did, disruption. Hey, what's going on? You know, hey, you know, tell me what's happening. Are you guys okay? Is something, something's going on here? I mean, you probably shouldn't be hitting this child. You should never be hitting a child. And 
why don't you just work on getting your groceries and getting in here and maybe calming down a little bit, right? That disruption technique, verbal judo, if you will, that's the kind of thing that we need to train, even just citizens. And so to that end, one of the things that we are working on now, you know, we want cast education in the hands of everybody across every community. My, my goal, number one, is I want to see cast in every college and university. That is a bold strategy, but I think that, again, education being that primary point where we move the needle in a forward-thinking fashion and we end child maltreatment, you've got to have it there. I think that everybody that's going to have a college degree needs to learn something about child maltreatment through CAST. We're also working on community workshops. So those people that may never enter the traditional two and four-year schools, you know, a good example, law enforcement. A lot of places don't have to have more than a GED or high school diploma. They're never going to go and get that associates or bachelors and thus never interface with traditional CAST. But we would like to host community workshops and we do provide that kind of training at the Zero Abuse Project, um, we have targeted modules that we create supplemental learning experiences. So we're trying to create and enhance different pathways for learning to maximize CAST's reach. And we're also trying to look at different collaborative partnerships to extend and enhance the value of CAST as well. So we talked about the social inequities, the systemic and the structural bias, right, and racism. You know, if you look at our strategic plan, one of the major objectives that I would like to see in terms of growing cast, I would like to see more culturally competent coursework developed, how to speak and break bread and experience, right, different communities of color and how to engage them with our different systems and how to create equity within our systems. I am a cis white male. I have no perspective there and no lens. And I am one of those people that I would love to see somebody from those communities collaborate with us and create that kind of innovative groundbreaking content and to give voices to the voiceless, quite frankly, because again, I, I am with you, Ingrid, in that so much of our education has been very white, conservative driven, right? That kind of single path. Look, we drive on two lane roads and, and our services and systems and policies need to drive in that same capacity. We need everybody on board. I always look at, at CAST as everybody has a hand in ending child abuse. And so any way that we can innovate and create new resources and new opportunities for learning with CAST, I definitely wanna be able to do that. Yeah, I think um, what you're saying is is great that kind of the next level of this work is really to kind of meet families where they are, meet communities where they are. Um, yes. One thing that has kind of been a thread throughout this conversation that we really haven't expounded on, I think is um, institutional child abuse. And you brought it up at the beginning when you talked about your wife in the teaching setting right. and how, um, you know, child abuse within schools and within churches and oh, yeah. um, and these other institutions that we kind of hold sacred and, and but also are kind of breeding grounds for child abuse because of, you know, the right. access, the, um, the uh, you know, the ability to to be covered by the, the respect of the position and things of that nature that comes right. along with institutional abuse. Where do you where do you think what what work is CAST doing in this space? And if not, then what's the direction that you think is next for that that kind of work? Right. So from an institutional perspective, I think probably our our workshops 
We're working on create, they're called Project Create Workshops, which are expanded educational opportunities for continuing education and community education. Uh, so point blank and being completely honest with you, uh, I was not always your forensic science expert and your higher ed professional, right? I wasn't a professor. I actually worked with my brother-in-law starting out and to, to fund myself through school as a rough and plumber. And so think about how many times a given day a plumber is in someone's house and could stand up and stop maltreatment, make a report when they see something, right? So we're trying to reach out to those communities and break bread with them and try and develop workshops tailored to looking at that institutional or looking at that career-based experience in terms of recognizing abuse. So one of the things that we're working with on on this front with a local CAC child advocacy center here in Indiana is can we bring in different church congregations? Can we talk about the fact that yes, church congregations oftentimes do have individuals that lean heavily into scripture to validate abuse, right? To substantiate and, and wave away the, the negative connotations and the fact that abuse is occurring. How can we work with them to recognize when someone is within their congregation that is perpetuating abuse? And then we're also looking at, you know, childcare professionals. We're looking at educators. I just spoke with our local high school, in fact, about creating improved mandated reporting practices and training and also helping them recognize the responsibilities that they have. Because Ingrid, I, as you have already said, from an institutional standpoint, there is a lot that we have just allowed to kind of slide by. And I will tell you that even this year alone, I have been told by some people that have went through some of our our technical assistance and training avenues that they've been told by other colleagues in education still 2022, right? And Matthew, I'm sure you've heard this same kind of sentiment is this is their personal problem. Child abuse is, look, I don't want to hear this story. Quite literally, that was the words that were stated to me is a child came to a teacher and wanted to disclose and they go, no, it's not my problem. It's not my problem. This isn't, it, that's your personal problem and I don't want to do this. I actually had a technical assistance call at one point where the person didn't want to make the mandated report because they said, uh, I know the family member. It's a small community. They're going to know I'm going to be the one that makes this mandated report. No. So we are working on breaking down those old traditional exhausting barriers that allow abuse to perpetuate through these training initiatives. We work with you to understand the myths and how to dissolve those myths and how to improve your willingness and your legal responsibility to make that mandated report. And in addition to that, we want to also strengthen your mandated report. We want to improve the chances of a screening so that someone properly investigates. Because unfortunately, if you look at the fourth national incident survey on child maltreatment, the greater the severity of abuse, the least likely that that child will get an investigation. That is such a confounding and problematic statistic it makes my stomach drop whenever I, I see these kinds of confounding variables where we are living in a time where education and technology has advanced so much. We have got to stop allowing these old systemic and tired values and broken policies to continue to manifest. And I really think with CAST, given that it is looking at emerging trends and topics, given that it is education-based, I truly think that it can change the world. Yeah, I, I'm, I really, this is a, a topic that's close to my heart, just in my personal and professional world. So I 
I'm glad that there is work out there that's training people in this space. Absolutely. Um, and I definitely think that we have a long way to go, but that I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that CAST exists, that we are looking into what it means to, to work with um, families of different backgrounds, uh, meet, meet families and communities where they are, and then also, you know, really um, train people to identify um, child abuse and act like, what do I do when this happens? I think that's, that's critical. Um, we are close to closing out, but I do want to give you, Tyler, a chance to, you know, whatever it is that you want to tell our audience to close out. What do they, want, what do yep. they need to know about you, about CAST, a call to action? Um, yeah. Um, looking at CAST, it's flexible. It can be injected in your current coursework. It's no cost. Contact me, Tyler at zeroabuseproject.org. I keep late hours. I, I work diligently on behalf of you all and advocate for you all as faculty and educators and teachers that can change this world. You know, whenever I look at this, I, I tend to look and to paraphrase Aristotle, right? The roots of education are bitter, but the fruits are sweet. And I can't think of a sweeter future than one without child abuse where we work ourselves out of a job. So again, there is no cost to you for cast. Why haven't you started yet, right? That's kind of the question I always ask people is, let's do this. Let's figure out how we can get cast launched at your schools and in your communities and give every child a fighting chance. We need more good people, champions for children on the front lines now and in the future to ensure that children are safe. So I appreciate your time today and thank you so much for allowing me to share about cast. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And I definitely appreciate your sentiment around, you know, ending child abuse and, and being a champion for children. So that definitely aligns with Paces Connections values. And so we we're glad that we could get you on today. Um, just thinking through, you know, for our audience, uh, definitely look into CAST, but then also individually, um, what can you do to respond to child maltreatment and child abuse in your um, in your surroundings, in your neighborhood, and your maybe even in your own home, um, because like we talked about in in other sessions, you know, child abuse is really impacting our society in a negative manner. Um, and so, thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.